This morning we're looking at John 8, the story. John 8, 2 through 11. You'll find the words behind me on the screen. You've got them with you. Follow along that way. So John 8, starting at, at verse 2. Before we read it, let's pray. God, once again, we, we just say thank you. Thank you for, for meeting us here. Thank you for giving us your, your word. and We can read these stories and somehow we, we learn more about you and, and who we are called to be. And so, Holy Spirit, do what you do. Open our eyes and ears and hearts and help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. We will go that far. That's one of those stories, isn't it? Um, so, sometimes when people who do what I do, when we're preparing a, a, a talk, or message, a teaching, uh, we, we like to sort of create an image or a framework and then sort of build the whole teaching around that. And that can be fun. It can be like gets your creative juices going. Like a few weeks ago, I talked about horror films, and we had that whole fun thing. And, but sometimes it's, it's, uh, sometimes it's better to just sort of walk through the story and notice things and point things out and maybe talk about them. It's sort of like when you, when you walk into a room you've never been into and you notice some things. Like you treat a biblical story like that. You walk into a room. Let's say you walk into this room. You've never been in here before. You walk in and you're like, oh, it kind of looks sketchy from the outside, but once you get inside, it that's nice in here. Like I like I like what you've done with the 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 drapes. You know that green. It's nice pop. It's a nice pop of color in here, especially with especially with the gray everywhere. <laughs> gray. That pop of color is really good. And those things on the wall. I don't know what those are, but but they kind of make 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 it look old school almost. It's, it's nice. And that, that wood stuff back there, now that really warms up the place. I, I like what you've done 
with that. And so you notice, you know, you walk into a place and you're like, oh, that's kind of nice. Sometimes you walk into a room that, that you've never been into and, and the first place your eye looks is the floor. And you're like, oh my goodness. Have you guys, you guys pay attention to your floor in here? There's stains everywhere. Like you might want to do something about that. And, and we're like, in our defense, we like to spend our money other places. So anyway, but yeah, we notice like there's some things that yuck. That's kind of gross. So you sort of treat a story in the Bible like that. You walk around, you, you sort of point like a room you've never been in before. You point at things, you notice some things. So let's do that this morning. Uh, the first thing I'm going to say about this story is this horrible. This is a horrible, horrible situation. This is a horrible, tragic, terrible, gross story, the way, it, the way it begins. So Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, right? It's dawn. Should we start at dawn next week? Maybe we should make, I mean, Jesus did it. We're supposed to follow Jesus and imitate him, right? So next week, dawn? No. So he's there. It's dawn. He's sitting down as rabbis do when they teach, and everybody else is standing up so that they can, you know, stay awake and listen. Insert joke here about how I should be sitting and you all should be standing, but I'm not going to because it's funnier the first time you do it, and I've already done that one, so we won't go there. So then, all of a sudden, there's like this commotion, and he's in the middle of teaching. There's this commotion. These men come in. These are teachers of the law. These are Pharisees. These are religious experts. These are people who know their Bibles backwards and forwards. They know what's written. They know what's in there. And they're dragging along with them a woman. And this woman has been uh, caught violating religious law, Torah, which says that it lists adultery, among a whole bunch of other things, as a capital crime. And uh, the punishment is death by stoning. Death by stoning. So it's a, a, horrible, a horrible way to die. Um, you've got this pit that is created, and the accused is put down in the pit while everybody else sort of stands around outside of it with stones, rocks, and uh, you throw them until the person in the pit is dead. This is a horrible story. This is what they're, they're bringing to Jesus. This is what they, they want to do because this is what their, their law says is supposed to happen. Imagine the woman now. She's struggling. She's, she's being dragged along. Clearly, she doesn't want to be there. Just see it. Picture it. She's pleading for mercy. She's crying. She's screaming. She's wailing. She's at a place where she cannot comprehend what is happening to her in this moment. She's lying in the dirt. She's terrified as men have surrounded her with stones in hand. And she hears one of them say, Teacher, this woman was caught, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses said, you know, we're supposed to stone such women. What do you say? So let's stop right there. Let's just notice. 
these religious elite, these people who know their Bibles. They know what it says. It seems almost as if they, they were just waiting for someone to make a mess of things so that they could sort of pounce, so that they could stage some sort of weird, creepy demonstration. Right? It seems like they were just waiting. Let's just notice a reality here, that there's something about religion or maybe religiosity that makes us prone to sort of this self-righteous judgmentalism. Can we do that? Can we, can we, because like a lot of times we want to see the Pharisees and we'll be like, eh, we'd never be like that. We're, you know, those are, those are the, the enemies here of Jesus. And so that we're on Jesus's side. And so we don't want to put ourselves in, in that place. But can we just talk about that for a minute? That there's something about religion, religiosity, that makes us prone to, to judgmental. Like we can be judgy. At least that's, that's the reputation that we have. We can be judgy, and often we are. We look down our noses at other people. This is something we do. Let's own it. Ugh. Now, why would this be? Should we talk about that? Let's spend a few minutes just wondering. Maybe you've got some suggestions. If you want, you can talk. Why, why is this? Why is this a reality? If you don't come up with anything, that's okay. You're not used to talking during this time. I've got some ideas. Why, why does this happen? Why do religious people get judgy? What, do you, what are some reasons, you think? Makes us feel better about ourselves. Oh my goodness. Doesn't it? Any other reasons you can think of? Position makes us feel powerful. Right? It makes us feel like we're right and other people are wrong. and It makes us feel better because, after all, God's on our side. I mean, and we have God's Word. We know what the Bible says. We have God's Word. And so it becomes easy for us to, to take God's Word, and we've been talking on Wednesdays about how sometimes we use the Word of God like a weapon. The Bible, we use it as a weapon. And so we can easily look at sort of all the other people out there who are living their lives in the world, and clearly they aren't living according to God's plan, at least our interpretation of God's word. And so we get judgy. Maybe it's because, maybe it's because we're the chosen ones. Right? All over the pages of the Bible, like you see God saying, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. I've chosen you. You hear people understand that they've been chosen. Even Jesus said it to his followers. He's like, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And then we stop there and we don't read the rest of what Jesus said about what it means to be chosen and what he expects. You know, we just, we've, we've been chosen. It makes us feel better about ourselves. Oh, the Pharisees, like here's, their, here's their reason for being judgy. Right? They're, they're the religious experts and they're living in Jerusalem, which is an occupied city. So there's this foreign army, the Romans, who are there. And their, their thought process was God's mad. God's angry at God's people, which is why God is allowing this foreign army to occupy their place, because God's people aren't holy enough. They aren't acting the way they should. And so if only those people would do things right, then the Roman army would leave and God would send somebody and save us all. 
So they're sort of ideas about God. So religion has this, has this thing about it that makes us sort of prone to, to judgmentalism. But maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe it's just part of, of the human condition. Maybe it's just in us. Right? Just stroll through Facebook on occasion, and you see it. I'm part of this group called Ames People. Anybody else part of that group? Holy it's great. <laughs> it's great watching people tear each other apart. <laughs> it is great entertainment. And it makes me sad, too. Like, especially political season. Oh, my goodness. Ah! But there's something that's just in us. You learn that someone else, even if we don't know them very well, is, is on the other side of the political aisle. And what do we do? We immediately start making judgments about who they are and what they believe and what they think. And we lump them all together with all of those other people over there on the other side. And we're not like them. And this is what we do. Maybe it's just in us. And there's this other thing called implicit bias. I'm sure you've heard of this, right? Implicit bias anyone? We're learning. We're continuing to learn more and more about this, that inside each and every one of us, all of us, we have this thing where we, we have biases for or against people or certain groups of people. And these things exist even sort of against our will, almost. Like, we would say that we don't believe these things. Like, this is contrary to what, we, what I believe, and yet it's still can be true in our hearts. And if you're curious, do you know what your implicit biases are? Like if you're curious, you can go online and there are lots of good, good self-assessment tools. Harvard has one. You can go online and you can take implicit bias uh, self-assessment tools and you may not like what you find out. Like you may think you're in one spot, but you take these little self-assessment tools and you, you learn some things about yourself that you wish weren't there. You walk into the room that is your life, and you look at the carpet, and you're like, there's some stains on there I don't like. Maybe I should probably do something about that. Maybe it's just in us. Maybe it's just part of the human condition, and maybe religion, you mix that with our implicit biases, and maybe it makes those things worse. Maybe it actually doesn't help if we're not careful. Like in our story, right? This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In, think about that. This woman was caught in the act. That raises all sorts of questions, does it not? We already know that this was an intensely patriarchal society, so that begs the question, where's, where's the, we're assuming this was a, a male-female thing in the act. Where is he? It's just the woman. It's, there's something about religion that sort of makes us prone to being judgmental, maybe even intensifying our implicit biases, possible, possibly. Can we, can we just be honest about that? Let's keep going. I think the carpet's looking bad. It's real bad. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Like, are they, all sorts of questions. Are they spying? Like, did they set this up? 
It seems like they kind of set this up. Again, where's, where's the other person here? It takes two to tango. Something's, something's weird here. And yeah, John tells us this whole thing's a trap. Like it's a, whole, it's a setup. In the law of Moses, in the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone such women. What do you say? So let's, let's, let's step out of the room of this story and just go back to chapter 7 and learn the context of what's going on here because it, it sort of it sets it up perfectly for these religious people to do what they're doing. Right? So what, what, they're just, what they've just come to the end of is celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And during this festival, people would come, pilgrims would come from all over the place to, to celebrate in Jerusalem. They would build these makeshift tents out in the streets. And for eight days, they would celebrate God's provision for Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. You can find, you can find these stories in, in Exodus. Right? And so there would be lots of, they would literally be living out on the streets in tents, sort of having these parties. And there would be lots of singing, there would be dancing, especially at the end of it, lighting of torches. I actually talked about this like a month or two ago. And um, so there'd be lots of wine. So it's like this religious thing where the wine is flowing. So you can sort of understand how someone would, would find themselves in somebody else's tent, wake up the next morning. Um, wondering what, what it is that, they, that, they did, that they've done. And they're like, oh, oh my goodness. So why did they choose this woman? Like, that's what's happening. Why did they choose her? There are probably dozens of people that they could have chosen from. It's a setup. This is a trap. They like set this whole thing up. She's an object. They're using her. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So he's trapped now, if he says she should be stoned, he's got all these new followers who are, who are listening to his message of grace and love and healing and forgiveness. So if he says she should be stoned, they're all going to be like, this whole thing's been a sham. And they're going to walk away. Right? If he says, well, let's give her a second chance. Let's, let's give her grace. Let's, let's, uh, let's see if we can, we can help her on a new path. Besides, the Romans say we can't engage in capital punishment anyway. We might get, get ourselves into some trouble. The religious elite will then discredit him because he doesn't know or believe what the Bible says about women who are caught in adultery. So Jesus bends down and he starts writing in, his, in, the, in the dirt with his finger. We have no idea what he was writing. There's, been, there's lots of speculation about what it is he's writing. Some of it's crazy and weird and wild, and, and some of it's actually kind of nice. But there was, our best guess is that he wrote in the dirt, again, I don't know, this is pure speculation. Anyone says they know, they don't. This is pure speculation. So our best guess is that he wrote, stone her with stones, letting everyone there know that he knows what the Bible says, what Torah says about people being caught in adultery, they should be stoned to death. So he, he does that, but then he stands up and he says something different. He says, if anyone is without sin, let them cast the first stone. Oh, and it's like the, the perfect reversal thing, and we're all like, you got him, Jesus, yes. Right? Because we know what he's just done. Right? The trap, he's not going to have anything to do with it. He's not going to fall for it. So he turns it around and springs it back on them, puts its focus on them. 
he also immediately humanizes the woman. Immediately. She's no longer an object. She's now a human. He's forcing these angry religious men to see her as a human because they now have to identify with her. Anyone who is without sin, oh my goodness. She's just another person, just like them. And he gives us, them, the best antidote to the virus of religious self-righteous judgmentalism. And that is this, we're all in the same boat. We've all made a mess of things. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all there. So that person with whom you have a a problem, an issue, he's your brother. Ultimately, she's your sister. You, you're the same. We're all a part of the same family. That group of people against whom you have a bias, well, they're, they're brothers and sisters. They're family. You're the same. We're the same. That's why we leave room in our prayers for this thing called confession, to acknowledge before God that we aren't perfect people. Like it's a regular thing that we do. It's important for us to, to ask for forgiveness, not so that we can wallow in it, but so that we can be honest about it. I suspect it's one of the reasons why the Catholic Church raises confession to the same level of, as things like baptism and the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Like They make it a sacrament. Why? Because it's that important. It is that important. Maybe it's the, the best antidote to that virus of religious self-righteous judgmentalism is to just see ourselves for who we are. Carpet's pretty dirty. Needs some cleaning. So the story moves on. One by one, the religious elite, they drop their stones. I like how it says, starting with the oldest. I don't know exactly what that means, but, but I suspect that the longer you've been around, the more you realize how far you got to go. So they drop their stones, leaving Jesus alone with the woman. He says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Remember who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. Shows us exactly who God is. Looks her in the eye and says, Neither do I condemn you. Go, leave your life of sin. I imagine she doesn't know what to say. She's speechless at this point. She doesn't know what to do. She's stunned. Jesus has just taken the anger of the religious people. He's just taken it off of her and he's put it on his own back. Like they're mad that this whole thing took place. Like he just made a fool of them now they're really going to come after him, right? She's just experienced a demonstration of costly love that gives her her life back. You know, Jesus didn't just die by the cross. If you read the stories about him in the Gospels, we become aware that he lived by the cross, constantly showing costly love to those around him so that other people might live fuller, happier, healthier, more beautiful 
lives, costly love. He was constantly offering it. So now by grace, this woman has an opportunity at a new life. She has the opportunity to go home and do the things that she needs to do in order to make amends, to start beginning to make things right. It won't be easy. It'll be really hard. This was a painful public humiliation. But now she has that opportunity to to work with God at transforming her life. Right? Because the only way to be transformed is to have that experience of grace. Right? Will she allow it to transform her? Will we allow it to transform us? So the next time we're sort of feeling, uh, we're sort of feeling the urge to judge, like at home, at work, at play, at school, wherever it is we are. Or maybe the next time the cultural winds are sort of blowing us in that direction, the next time the political winds are blowing us in that direction, maybe the best thing to do is just stop. Like Jesus, that he sort of stops and he writes with his finger in the dirt. You can almost feel it. You can almost feel him slowing the momentum of the mob, giving everybody an opportunity to breathe to think. He just sort of slows it down. Maybe the best thing for us to do is to just slow down, breathe, recognize the implicit bias that resides in each of our own hearts, and then lean into grace, lean into compassion, lean into into the demonstration of costly love that Jesus has shown each of us. And I think when we do that, it's at that moment, in those moments, that transformation can take place. We can actually be changed and made new. So we're here. We talk about the grace of God. We talk about the love of God. We talk about God's forgiveness. But what is our expectation? Do we expect an experience of that to actually change us? To actually make us new and different when we lean into it and work with God. It might be hard, but to make real, actual changes in our own lives, will we allow that to happen? Because an experience of grace, an experience of love from God, you know, it's, it, we talk about it as being free. We talk about it as being unearned, and all of that's true and beautiful, but, but it doesn't mean we don't have work to do. It doesn't mean we don't have work to do after an experience of it to change our own lives, to actually be, live differently. Will we allow it? Will we do it? I don't know. Let's pray.